Do the smart thing. Let's pray and get started. Lord, just thank you for the time to be here this morning and just the blessing of just the special music and also worship and just those that you brought out today. I just want to pray for safety for everybody as they travel home. And Lord, just over the next couple of days, safety for all those. I especially think of the widows and the elderly that you'd be with them specifically. Thank you for the time to be here. We just pray to bless this time in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to be finishing up Acts chapter 4 and doing the first part of Acts chapter 5. This is what I like to call one of the compare-contrast messages in the Bible. What you see in verses 32 through 37 of Acts chapter 4 is what the church should strive for. This is what we should be doing. What you see in Acts chapter 5 is more of what the church is probably actually doing. And so it's a comparing to what God is wanting of us compared to the struggles and actually the fallings that we have in this area. But it starts out really optimistic, and it starts out really good. So let's start with that, Acts 4, verse 32. Now, background. If you remember back in Acts chapter 2, we had the day of Pentecost. Thousands of believers got saved. An amazing day. And then what happened here in Acts chapter 3, there was this wonderful miracle. There was this man that was over 40 years old that was lame from birth, and he was miraculously healed. Thousands of people got saved then. So in the span of just a couple short months, the church has grown numerically into thousands and thousands of people. What a lot of people believe is this, that Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, for certain feasts. And as they were required to come do this, that's when they got saved. It was the day of Pentecost. A lot of people believe that those men probably stayed around. You know, this was new, this was exciting, this relationship with Christ. And so they had a lot of people in Jerusalem that they now had to take care of. The church is in this infancy stage. It's a kind of a difficult time. And so as they have all these people they're trying to meet the needs for, the church needs to step up and help with that. And that's what you see here in Acts 4. Verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they all had things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This idea of being one again. This is a phrase that's popped up repeatedly, this idea of one accord. They saw in Acts chapter 2 that they were one in prayer. We talked about earlier that they were one in purpose of spreading the gospel. And what you see here is they're one in possessions. You've got your hand here in Acts. Let's jump back to Acts chapter 2 real quick. Remind ourselves of verses 44 and 45. It says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. Once again, the church was in this unique spot. Thousands of people new to the Lord in this area that they could then meet their needs. It's different today. Back then, the church was just Jerusalem, just right there. It was much easier to locally take care of everything. But what a heart that they had. And here's one of the key things. This idea, verse 32, Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they all had things in common. You know, it's not my house, it's the Lord's house. He's blessed me with the ability to stay there. It's not my car, it's the Lord's car. He's blessed me with being able to have it. There's this biblical word that we use called steward, which means manager. You're a manager of the possessions that God has given you. They're not yours. They're not. It's the Lord that has given them to you. Great passage in James 1 that says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. So yes, I'm blessed with the car and blessed with the house, 
It's not mine, it's the Lord's. And if there's a way that could be used to spread the gospel or help the body of Christ, then I want to do that. You know, we just had Christmas a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that we always do with the boys as we set them down to give them the gifts, we always say, boys, we bought these gifts for you. And the gift that you're going to open is we bought for you with you in mind. So we think it's something you will like. But as soon as you open that gift, anybody else in this family can also participate and use it. Yes, it was bought for you. Yes, we think you will be blessed by it. We think you personally will have fun with it. But as soon as you open it, it also becomes corporate that anybody else in the family can utilize that and have fun with that. I think that's the way it should work in the body of Christ. Yes, I've been blessed with a car. I'm very blessed with that car. But at the same time, if somebody pops up and says, hey, my car's not working, I need a ride here or there, maybe I can help them out. That's part of the blessing there of realizing in verse 32, it's not my possessions, but it's the Lord. Now, the focus is not on possessions or things or money. The focus is verse 33. They gave witness or they testified, depending on your translation, on Jesus. See, it's so easy as a church to get caught up in things and ministries and building projects and staff and volunteers. The focus is supposed to be verse 33, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jonathan just said not too long ago uh, when he was sharing out here, keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. And you see that here in the church. Even though they're distributing things, taking care of needs, the main thing is still the resurrection of Christ. That's what matters more than anything. And what's the result of this? Verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. Their needs were met. That's important at this time to kind of stop and remind ourselves of the difference between needs and wants. We all know this. Needs are the things we need. Wants are the things that we want. Now, I don't know about you. It's really easy for, to convince myself of wants becoming needs. I can do that pretty quickly. That's one of the things that, once again, we've tried to ingrain into the boys is this idea of needs versus wants. I mentioned to you, I think it was last Sunday, that we did our post-Christmas shopping trip on Friday. The boys were given money for Christmas, and so we went out and did their Christmas shopping. And it's kind of interesting to see how they all respond to that. Judah, our second-born, was very practical. And as he was going down the toy aisle at Walmart, he said, Dad, it's hard for me to buy anything because there's nothing I need. And I said, got it. Now, late in our fourth-born, he was walking down the toy aisle, and he saw stuff. And he said, Dad, I need this. You know, some Buzz Lightyear thing. I said, you need it? He goes, I need it. I know I need it. Now, do we not do that as adults? I need this. Do you really need it? Oh, I need this. It's a want that is very powerful in your heart that maybe you've convinced is a need. Let's just get down plain and simple. You know what you need? You need salvation through Jesus Christ. Anything past that's a want. Oh, I'm lonely. I'm empty. I'm this, I'm that. I understand. Your need is to save you out of hell. Your need is your sins to be taken care of through Christ. Past that, we trust that the Lord will meet our needs in, in Him. I'm going to reference this verse many times this morning. It's out of Psalm 37. David wrote, I've never seen the righteous suffer for bread. The Lord will meet your needs. So what do you see here in verse 34? Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. The church took care of the church. They kept a spiritual focus, verse 33, but they also took care of the practical focus. And how do they do it? Verse 35, laid it at the apostles' feet. You see that repeated in verse 37. Laid it at the apostles' feet. And for just one more time for fun, verse 2 of chapter 5, laid it at the apostles' feet. 
What they did was these people would take and sell these items and they would come and give this money to the church with the understanding that the church would then know the best way to handle this money to take care of making sure needs are met and the gospel is spread. And I've got to be careful with this passage. I've heard people teach on this before where they say lay it at the apostles' feet and they take it personally. If the focus of the person or the ministry is money, you run from that thing as quick as you possibly can. The phrase laid at the apostles' feet just literally means that they came and gave money to the church because the church had inside knowledge on where that money could best be used to once again spread the gospel and meet the needs of the people that are suffering. Same thing still happens today. There may be a situation out here where there may be this, this person struggling with something. We know that. We can help that person out maybe financially or materialistically a little bit to get them through. That, that information not, may not be go out to the body because it just may not be open information. But when that money is given, we can then stop and prayerfully say, okay, how can we help this situation? So when it's laid at the apostles' feet, this is not some type of possession of the apostles getting rich. No. It's the idea that the church knew the best way to meet the needs of the body of Christ within the church that was struggling, while still also, verse 33, keeping the focus on Jesus. That's the focus. I know pastors and ministries, as soon as their name is mentioned, the first thing you think about is the building that they're in. You think about that pastor being what I call like that rock star Christian. You don't think of the gospel going out through that ministry. We've got to be careful about that. The main thing has to be, verse 33, the gospel is going out. And we're introduced real quickly here to verse 36, Barnabas. Barnabas becomes a key player in just a few chapters. But we're introduced to Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement or son of consolation, which is kind of an interesting name because when Paul gets saved here in a few chapters, Barnabas is the first guy to really take Paul under his wing. He is that man of encouragement. And Paul and Barnabas will go on missionary journeys. We'll get more at Barnabas here in a little bit. But did you catch this? Verse 36. He's a Levite. From the country of Cyprus, he had land, he sold it. Now, that may not be that big a deal, but that's kind of interesting. As a Levite, he's not allowed to own land. See, when the land was allotted back during the Old Testament, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, got no land. And the reason they received no land is because their inheritance was they got to serve the Lord. So, how did this guy have land? Now, there's a couple ways to look at this. Number one, some people say, well, maybe his wife had the property. Okay, well, we don't know that. That's an idea. Some people say, well, maybe since he was from Cyprus, he had an offshore bank account, and he didn't have any land in Jerusalem. He had his land in Cyprus, so he was kind of bending the rules. Some people say, well, maybe the rule wasn't being really fulfilled at that time. The law wasn't really being paid attention to. Those all could be true. Or it could also be that this guy, once he came to know Jesus, was convicted. And as he was convicted, he said, I want to make things right with the Lord. See, it's amazing how when you first know Christ, your heart just slowly begins to let go of those things that you never thought you would let go of. I can remember when I first got saved, I told somebody, I said, I love Jesus, I'm going to serve him, but I'm never going to let go of this. And about three months later, I let go of this. Because the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you realize you don't want to hang on to those things anymore. It's just not important. And when any time someone comes up and gets saved... And there's this issue that they're holding on to. I always say, give it some time. You'll find that thing becomes very distasteful to you after a while. Or somebody will come up and say, hey, this guy got saved. And I told him he needs to quit doing this, 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 and this. Well, he probably will in time. Give it some time. As the Lord works on his heart and molds him. Molds him. I remember one time someone coming up to me and they were very frustrated. Because there was a new believer 
that was not letting go of things as quick as they thought they should. So this guy came up to me and said, this new believer needs to let go of this, change this, do this. And I said that, let it go, in time they will. He wouldn't let it go. And I remember looking at him saying, you're telling me as soon as you got saved, you immediately dropped everything. and was perfectly serving the Lord from day one. He paused for a second, looked down, looked at me and said, yes, I did. It doesn't happen that way, folks. It doesn't. It's a growth. It's a process. We know that. Think back to when you first got saved. Some of those words that you won't say now, they still slipped in. Some of those actions that you would not think of doing now still slipped in. I can't say for sure what happened here with Barnabas, but I think it's interesting that God would make a point to mention to us in verse 36, he's a Levite, had land, and sold it when he wasn't allowed to. It looks like Barnabas was the guy that the longer he walked with the Lord, the more he realized, I wouldn't let go of anything that may not be proper in him. I wish we could stop the message right now and say, this is how it works. Problem is we have Acts chapter 5. Too often we read Acts chapter 5 separately. It has to go with the end of 4, because this is the compare and contrast. Verses 32 through 37 is the good. Starting in verse 1 of Acts 5, it's the bad and the ugly. Verse 1. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. That was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look. The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all those of the church and upon all those who heard these things. What you see here is this idea of them giving to the Lord, but being deceitful about it. And as they were being deceitful about it, judgment came upon them. It's a pretty harsh thing. I think at this moment right now, it's a good time to take up the offering just to see how sincere. Now, this chapter has caused a lot of struggle for people. I remember distinctly there was a friend that we had at the Friday night study years ago that we prayed for a long time to know the Lord. The Lord worked on his heart for years. Guy got saved. It was an amazing thing. He started reading the Bible, studying. He got to Acts chapter 5. He contacted me, and he was mad. He says, you always tell us, God of love, God of grace, God of mercy, God doesn't want your money. It's not about giving possessions, it's about your heart. But yet in Acts chapter 5, the Lord just knocks people down dead left and right. That's true, he did. Here's the thing. It's not that Ananias and Sapphira didn't give enough. It's that they lied. See, it's not about the giving. Too often we look at Acts chapter 5 and it sounds like God's just greedy. You know, you sold this land and you sold it for 10000 whatever. And you said you were going to give it all to the Lord, but you only came and gave God 5000 I want my other 5000 now. Sounds like God's like some mafia boss or something like that. No, it's a heart issue. He didn't like the fact that Ananias and Sapphira would openly lie... Knowing this, openly lie, but yet still get the full credit and attention and the pat on the back for doing it. 
We don't know for sure, and I don't want to add to the scriptures, but it sure sounds like this is kind of an open thing that they kind of publicly announced. We're going to sell this land, and the full prophets are going to Jesus. And they didn't. I want to stress this again. It's not that God didn't get all of his money. It's Ananias and Sapphira were walking in deceitfulness and lying. That's the issue here that pops up. They wanted the attention without the sacrifice. Now, we can learn a lot from this. Do we not do the same thing? And I'm not talking about giving. We'll get to that in a little bit. But do we not want the attention sometimes without the sacrifice? Lord, I want to grow in you, but I don't really want to put a lot of effort into it. Lord, I want my marriage to be blessed, but you know, you work on him, not me. Lord, I want my kids to be obedient, but I don't want to get up off the couch and discipline them. How often do we want the full blessing without willing to put the full sacrifice and effort into it? Ananias and Sapphira, sounds like they wanted the pat on the back. They wanted the attention. They wanted that, hey, look what they did. But yet they weren't willing to give the full sacrifice of it. So what happens is Ananias comes in and he keeps part of it back. This is planned out. His wife knew about it. Verse 1, verse 2, they, they planned to keep a part of it back. Now, I cannot stress this to you enough. It would have been completely okay. It would have been okay for them not to give anything. It would have been okay for them to give a part. Just don't lie about it. Just, just say, hey, we sold this land and we're going to give half of it to the Lord. Hey, amen. We sold this land and we're not going to give anything. Okay, well, that's your choice. But don't come and say we sold this land and we gave it all. That's the deceitfulness. Peter gave him a chance. Verse 3. Why'd you lie? Why'd you do this? And Peter stresses this, verse 4. While remained was not your own, there's no pressure. That's one of the things I love about out here at church. There's no pressure. We're not going to make you give. And I don't even mean financially. We're not going to make you come in here and say, here it is. We're going to force you to give. We're not going to make you give of your time, your energy, your resources. Not at all. I had a situation years ago where somebody used to come out to church I started going to a different church. They moved away. And the church they were going to did pledges. And maybe you've been involved with a church that did that, where they had to sign up to say, this is how much we're going to give. And so the guy called me up and said, what do you think about this? You know, that idea of, I'm going to promise to do this, I understand from the church perspective, it's their way of trying to follow budget, etc. I understand. But yet at the same time, that promise. I know a pastor that did a pledge thing, and so they got up to the pledge thing, and so much was pledged. And then he came back later, and I remember him saying, you know, you get about a fourth of what's pledged. See, here's the thing. No one forces us to do this. There's no pledge. There's no promise. Verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? You didn't have to sell this. After it was sold, was it not your own control? And Ananias, you could have kept the money. You could have kept some of the money. Just don't lie about it. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? What, what do you get out of this? You get the attention Of everybody knowing it, you have not lied to men but to God. See, go back to verse 3. By lying to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to God. The Lord sees. The Lord knows. What's the result? Verse 5. Death. Now, that's kind of tough. That's real tough. I'm willing to bet in the 2,000 years since this happened, don't you think somebody has lied about how much they gave at church at least one time? Why would the Lord start this like this? Not even just with Ananias. Look at this. Verse 7, his wife comes in. Verse 8, he gives her a chance. She does the same lie. Verse 9, you're going to die too. 
What an early ministry opportunity at church, the people that haul out the dead bodies, you know? That's what these guys did. I always thought about this. They go, bury the guy, come back three hours later, there's another body. I mean, that's just what they did at church. The Lord was serious about this, very serious about this. Once again, it's not a greed thing. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Turn with me, if you will, to um, 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9. Actually, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 5. Let's go there first. 1 Corinthians 5. They could have come clean. I firmly believe if Sapphira would have said, You're right, Peter. We lied. We're sorry. Forgive us. God is a God of grace and mercy. But what you see is this lie continuing. So let's talk about this deceitfulness. See, what happens here is this. Um, 1 Corinthians 5. Let's go ahead and look at verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. you got to remember, and it goes back to our study here in the book of Luke. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He represents that. And then what happens is there's this feast of unleavened bread. Leaven in the Bible represents sin. So therefore, Christ is trying to take the leaven out of us, take the sin out of us. And Paul has asked us to be unleavened without sin. And he goes, anytime you have a little bit of leaven in your life, a little bit of sin, it's going to deteriorate everything. So what you see here in the early church, that little bit of sin, that deceitfulness, that lying over giving, that would have spread through the church. God wanted to put a nip in that right then. Peter wrote later on in his epistle, judgment begins at the house of God. Here at the beginning of the church, the Lord wanted to set the scene immediately. It's not about getting attention for what you do. It's about your heart being right with me. And it's not about giving money. It's about anything. Giving of your time, your energy, your resources. Is your heart is ready to give to him honestly, sincerely, not for the pat on the back, and not done deceitfully. The Lord will lay it on your heart what you're supposed to do. The Lord may have led them to sell the land and give the money. The Lord may have not. We don't know. But they were no under obligation to do it. They just lied about it. Let's build on this idea of giving. Can you go to 2 Corinthians 9 now, please? 2 Corinthians 9. Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul lays out some aspects about giving. See, in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, he writes this, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, here's the thing. God wants you to cheerfully give of your time, your energy, and your resources to him. See, he'll purpose in your heart what to do, verse 7. And as he lays that on your heart to do, you have a responsibility to not look at that as begrudgingly or some type of, I have a compulsion to do this. I have to. But you choose to. You choose to. Let's say the Lord has called you to go deeper in him. So you decide that you can spend more time in prayer and more time in the word. So you decide you're going to get up every morning. And you're going to get up and you're going to get up at 5 a.m. You're going to spend a couple hours in prayer and a couple hours in the word. So you spend hours a day doing that. But you hate it. I mean, you 
hate it. Your alarm goes off and you wake up in a bad mood and you do not want to do it. But why are you doing it? Because the Lord told me to do it. Yeah, the Lord also told you to do it with a cheerful heart. If the Lord has laid it on your heart, verse 7, he's purposed you to do it, but you're doing it begrudgingly because you have to, stop and look at your motives of why you're doing it. That's the same thing with giving. If there's something the Lord has laid on your heart, maybe it's a service opportunity in church, and you feel led to get involved in that ministry, but every Sunday when it's your turn to serve in that ministry, you just get up and you're in a bad mood, and you're ticked. Where's the cheerfulness? Or what about the financial? The Lord has laid it on your heart to give to the ministry of the church, to help spread the gospel, to make sure people aren't lacking, but every time you drop that money off, you hate it. See, I've heard people say before, well, if you're not cheerful, don't do it. I kind of disagree with that. Because where do you draw the line at that? I wake up one day and I'm not cheerful about being married to Dawn, so I don't have to love her. I'm not cheerful about having kids, so I don't have to be good. I'm not cheerful. I don't like the hours that I have to spend in message preparation. So I'm just not going to do it this week because I'm not happy about it. I'm not cheerful about sitting down with somebody. I'm not cheerful about going to that hospital visit. So when you say, hey, can you come? Nah, I'm not going to come. Why? I don't want to. Yeah, but you're called. I don't care if I'm called. I'm not cheerful about it. See... Too often, we hear something, well, I'm not cheerful about it, or, you know, I don't get any joy out of it. Has God called you to do it? Well, yes. Well, then figure out why you get no joy out of it. If God has called you to do something, he'll also give you the strength, the energy, and the blessing to do it. He will. And if you have to stop and say, there is not a joy in this service opportunity, instead of saying no to the service opportunity, analyze and dissect your heart and why there's no joy. See what the root of the problem is. There are certain times in ministry, as a Christian, Jesus told this parable where he says, it is your duty to do it. It is. So God, give me a cheerful heart as I fulfill the duties and responsibilities that you lay on my heart. If I'm begrudgingly doing something, or I'm doing because I feel like I have to, Lord, I want to stop and realize, where's the joy? Why have I lost that? Because it is a joy to serve the Lord. It's a joy to serve the body of Christ. It is a joy to give up your energy and resources. It is a joy to give financially to a greater work to see the gospel being spread. It's a joy. And sometimes that joy can be difficult. But Lord, help us to see the big picture of it. Because the Lord says, when you are willing to make a sacrifice for me, I'm willing to bless you. Now stop and think about this for a second. Our sacrifices are so minute compared to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The writer of Hebrews has a great verse, and I don't know it off the top of my head of where it's at, but it says, you have not resisted to the point of bloodshed. Think about that for a second. Think about what Christ went through on the cross. And then think about our sacrifice of those few hours I have to spend with that co-worker that annoys me. That isn't compared to Christ on the cross. Or that time where God asked me to give up a couple hours to help that person do X, Y, or Z. That doesn't compare to the hours of suffering and shame that Christ went on the cross. We can be such a complaining, weak-minded body of Christ sometimes. Help us to see the big picture, Lord, of being a cheerful giver. Not grudgingly, not out of a have to, but out of a want to. So you got Barnabas, son of encouragement, that says, I want to do this. Then you have Ananias and Sapphira, and we don't know exactly what's going on, but they did it, but did it with deceitfulness. They weren't under any obligation to do that. 
but yet they chose to do it. They wanted to get the attention, the growth, the glory, whatever it was, without making the full sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to do. And here's the thing. Whatever sacrifice you make, God's not going to leave you empty. I love to study out what people's names mean. Ananias' name, Ananias's name means God has graciously given. Now think about that for a second. His name means God has graciously given. But yet Ananias held back on giving. God has graciously given. What has God graciously given us? I just made a quick list here. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. God has graciously given you, in Ephesians 2, 7, exceeding riches. God has graciously given you, in Ephesians 3, 8, unsearchable riches. Those words in the original language mean you can't even see the end of it. They're unlimited. The riches that God has given you. And then God has promised you in Philippians 4.19 that my God will supply all your needs. All your needs according to the mercy in Christ Jesus. I, I can guarantee you, your needs will always be met through the Lord. They always will be. I will reiterate that verse in Psalm 37 again where David wrote, I've never seen the righteous suffer. He's never has. The Lord will meet your needs. Now, will he meet all your wants? I will promise you, no, he will not. But he will meet your needs. Do you sometimes have wants that you put in the category of needs? You may be the four-year-old going through Walmart saying, you need Buzz Lightyear. I don't know. You don't need it. But you've convinced yourself you do. You need salvation through Jesus Christ that saves you from hell. That is what is needed. And that's part of the beauty of what you see here in the early church. In Acts 4, you see a church that met the needs of the body of Christ, physically met their needs. But you also see the church never losing the focus on proclaiming this, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he has given you entrance into heaven, saved you out of hell through his love, grace, and mercy. Acts 5 is not God being greedy and wanting a couple extra pennies in his pocket. Acts 5 is saying we can't walk in deceit We can't walk in a half-hearted effort. That's what Acts 5 is about. It's a wonderful compare-contrast chapter on what God has asked us to do and wants us to do, and to be quite honest, sometimes of how the church actually acts. Let's see what God has purposed in our heart. Let's be obedient to what God has called us. Let's not do it begrudgingly. Let's not do it out of have to. But let's do it with a cheerful heart to say, Lord, I want to serve you and love you in this way, in this manner, in this capacity. Marv, you'll come forward here for the final song. I encourage you to uh, prayerfully to seek the Lord.